Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. Uh, Side note, already, I know, already, right? Uh, I just shook Bob Murfield's hand. He's with us today, and I am so happy. I mean, that's a sign we're returning back to normal. Praise the Lord. Good to see you, Brother Bob Murfield. Uh, We're wrapping up Ruth today, and I'm, I'm happy that we're wrapping it up, but I'm also very sad because, man, this thing will preach. I'll tell you that. This book will preach. Let's get into it. But before we do, uh, has anybody ever heard the name Jerry Lee Lewis? I think uh, he is one who is known for shaking one's nerves and rattling one's brain, I think. It's something like that. Anyway, he was a rock and roll musician famous for standing up while playing the piano. In fact, I think it was more than standing up. Didn't he kick the piano bench out as he stood up playing? And he, and he was famous for his hit song, Great Balls of Fire, right? But overshadowing, in, in, in many ways, his, uh, his uh, musical, musical career was his personal life, which was kind of a train wreck. Let's just be honest. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis married his 13-year-old first cousin when he was 22. Now, for all you fathers in the room that are looking for a face to punch, because you have daughters, let me say that again. He married... His 13-year-old first cousin, Myra Gale Brown, when he was 22, you ready for this? Despite not yet being divorced from his previous wife. Yeah, kind of a train wreck, right? When he was asked by the press about her age, because she looked strikingly young, she, he lied and said she was older than she really was. So here was a man, and he was on a meteoric rise in his career. He was going up. Uh, and despite this meteoric rise to fame, his fans immediately turned on him for his inappropriate and illegal actions. This shot down his rising star in the music industry for a time. Later, he was able to eke out a career in country music. Now, it's not fair for me to stand up here today and read minds. I'm not gonna attempt to do that, but what seems to be clear is that Mr. Lewis wanted what he wanted and was willing to break social and legal rules to get it. His personal desires overwhelmed his loyalty to the laws of the United States and what would be considered by all reasonable people as well-mannered behavior. His actions spoke volumes. In our wrap-up of Ruth today, I want you to recall that Boaz has told Ruth in chapter 3, Boaz has told Ruth, that he was going to do what was necessary to see to her future. He was one of Elimelech's kin, but there was a kinsman who was closer. Those kinsmen, he and this other kinsman are called redeemers. There's a redeemer who's closer, and he, he promised Ruth that he was going to get her set up, going to get her taken care of, but talk is cheap, Right? Would he follow through? What we're going to be looking at today is this big question. How can we tell that loyalty is genuine? How can we tell that loyalty is genuine? So let's break up this path. Let's break up Ruth chapter four and and let's start by reading uh, uh, verses one through 12. And here we're going to see loyalty to the community. Let's let's see what we see what God uh, instructs us out of his word this morning. Ruth four, verse one. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it here in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. 
Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. The Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take, the, take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are my witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May, your act worth, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman." Let's stop there. If you remember, I want to review just a bit because it's been a few weeks. Boaz has had a very eventful evening the night before. Very eventful. The mood was good, right? Because the land was producing again. The, the famine was over and they were at the harvest, the barley harvest. He and his men were winnowing the grain at the threshing floor. And as they did so, as men often do, I can imagine that they were... Uh, the text tells us that they were enjoying some good food and some drink. And they had a camp out at the threshing floor. Why? To guard their grain from anyone who would come and rob it. So they spent the night out in the field. Even better, even better than all that good that was going on, a woman that Boaz, who Boaz has taken an interest in, a woman who Boaz knows to be a woman of noble character, has clearly indicated her interest romantically that night. Boaz, this morning, we're talking about this next morning, is now a man on a mission. He heads in from the field to the gate of the city of Bethlehem. Now, in Bible times, you, you probably know this, but cities were mostly fortified by walls to keep intruders out and just for general security purposes keeps uh, out unwanted intruders, including beasts, right? And so cities had gates. And you can imagine that in the morning time, those gates would come open and, and there'd be hustle and bustle, people going in, people coming out, and uh, so on and so forth. Those gates were the official place to do business. Think of a courtroom or going down to register paperwork at City Hall. The gates of the city, that's where you did official business, and so Boaz comes in from the field. So he stayed at the night out the threshing floor and he's coming in and he sits in the gate and he waits for the Redeemer. By the way, it's so funny. This Redeemer is never named, but uh, some folks say that uh, colloquially that this name in Hebrew, this, the word that's used to describe him as, as Mr. So-and-so. So that's how I'm gonna refer to him, Mr. So-and-so, right? So Mr. Uh, Mr. So-and-so probably stayed the night in his home and he's probably heading out to the field to work. So Boaz is coming in from the field. This man's going out to the field and they meet at the gate and this conversation ensues. Just to review, again, one more time for review. A man named Elimelech had a wife, Naomi, and his two sons, and they left Israel 10 years ago because of a famine. They went to the land of Moab, not a good idea. Moab, they, they worship false gods there in Moab. In that land, Elimelech's two sons took wives and married. And now Jewish men were not supposed to be doing that. They were not supposed to be taking foreign wives in marriage, especially, you know, well, they weren't supposed to be doing that. And these women weren't 
worshipers of the one true God. But the book is set, the book of Ruth is set in the time of the judges. And what do you know about the judges? Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, right? So uh, there's that going on. So in the course of time, Elimelech and his two sons die. Remember that? And then Naomi, Naomi with nothing left in Moab and hearing that things back in Bethlehem were turning around, the famine was coming to an end. She packs up and plans a return home. And Naomi, knowing that life for two Moabite widows in Israel is not gonna be a good life. Their chances of getting remarried are not good. And, and you know, you, don't, you just don't know what's gonna happen. Uh, she encourages them to return home to their own families, to their own homes, with the hopes that these two women could remarry and have a prosperous life. Orpah agrees. Orpah takes up Naomi on her offer and returns home. But Ruth, on the other hand, gives Naomi this sevenfold commitment. You know, where you go, I will go. Where you dwell, I will dwell. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. She made this amazing uh, she, she voiced this amazing commitment of loyalty to Naomi. And lo and behold, they do. They return to Bethlehem and life is hard. Uh, you know, I, I, do I need to remind you of this? I, I don't know, but women in those days were not allowed to own property. I'm guessing that before, I, I'm supposing, so this is not in the text, this is Scott supposing that before they left for this 10-year sojourn in Moab that Elimelech had probably leased his land out to someone else. The land was being used by someone else. And they could, they could if, if they had a male heir, they could buy that land back or you know, buy the lease back or they could wait till the year, if they had a male heir, they could wait till the year of Jubilee and then that, that land would go back into that family. But women were not property owners in that time. So life was hard and Ruth had to go out into the field, and she did willingly go out into the field to glean so that they could have the basic provision of food. That was the welfare of that time, the government assistance, so to speak, of that time. And it just so happens that in God's providence, I'm saying just so happens kind of winky face, if you like emojis, I don't know, uh, but I'm, I'm saying it kind of winky face. It just so happens that in God's providence, when Ruth goes out to glean, she ends up gleaning in the field of Boaz, who is a relative of Elimelech. And Naomi begins, Naomi, hear, hearing about this from Ruth, begins to hope for a brighter future because Boaz is a redeemer. Now, just to recap this one more time, according to Old Testament law, when a man dies and leaves no sons behind, that man's brother is expected to marry the widow and raise up the firstborn child, the firstborn son. The firstborn son will be known as the son of the dead person and will carry on in that person's line. And then any other children produced will be, will be uh, under the heading of, of the redeemer, right? The brother who married the widow would be called a redeemer and would be allowed to acquire the dead man's property until such a time that when the first son produced would be old enough to acquire that land and farm it for himself. That way the land stays in the name of that family, right? It's technical, I know. I'm trying to clarify as best I can. I have a nice graphic coming later to help show you this. So at this time in Israel, Perhaps that tradition had been extended a bit past brothers because we don't, know, we don't know what relationship Boaz was to Elimelech. Were they brothers? Were they cousins? We don't know. But they seem to have extended whatever that tradition was to the next of kin. And there's, there's Boaz, who's a redeemer, but there's someone a little bit close. So, and that's Mr. So-and-so. He's got Mr. So-and-so. He's got the 10 elders. And Boaz uh, tells him what's going on. By getting these elders, uh, whatever happens in this transaction, there'll be plenty of people to witness it. It's kind of like signing a contract. You have plenty of witnesses so that if there's ever a dispute, well, I didn't really mean that when I said it, you'll have 10 people to go, yeah, oh yeah, he meant it because I heard him say it. You know? So that's what the witnesses are all about. I find it very interesting 
I find it very interesting, the lengths that Boaz went to to do this right, to go through all the steps to make sure that the first redeemer, the nearer redeemer, had every opportunity to redeem this property and to marry Ruth before he did it for himself. Boaz did something that I think is really sorely missing in our culture today. He simply did this. He walked in the light. He just let everybody know exactly what was happening, exactly what the rules were, and exactly, and he gave the guy first offer. And when the guy didn't take it, then he claimed it for himself. It, it brings me to a, a point, this, this text seemed to direct my mind to a situation that we find ourselves in often today in our contemporary life. It, I find it very interesting that it's common. We don't, even, we don't even think about it anymore. It's very common that someone would finagle their way into an office, whether that be by election or appointment or whatever. They'll finagle their way in the office and they'll say what they need to say to convince everybody that I'm just gonna follow the law. I'm just gonna do everything right. I'm gonna do everything according to Hoyle, as we say, those of us that play cards. I'm going to do everything according to the rules. And then when they get into office, when they get into that position of power, when they get into that place where they can make decisions, what do they do? Oftentimes, they follow an agenda. Could be a political agenda, right? Could be a corrupt agenda. In other words, I'm just going to line my pockets. I'm going to use the power of this office to put some money in my pocket. You want a permit for that new road? Right here. What are you going to put in my pocket? Right here. Could be an agenda, could be an illegal or immoral immoral agenda. I don't know what you think about folks that act this way, but it seems like that we're just used, so used to it now as Americans that we just let it happen right in front of our faces. We just expect that somebody who's going to be, for example, somebody that the president appoints to their cabinet, that they're gonna go and they're gonna testify before Congress, they're gonna say what they need to say to, to make a, a good vote, and then they're gonna get into where they hold the office and they're gonna do the exact opposite of what they promised Congress, right? We just expect it, it just happens. Boaz is not that guy. This is a very refreshing text. Boaz is, Boaz is following all the rules to the T. He's risking losing a marriage to a girl, a young lady that he likes. He really likes Ruth. He's risking that, but he follows all the rules. Now, Boaz could simply have eloped with Ruth. He could have pulled a Jerry Lee Lewis, right? He could have said, come on, baby. Let's go. Let's go. We're going to go get hitched, and uh, I'm going to buy Elimelech's land, and nobody needs to know. But what would that have done? People would eventually find out and say, Where, where'd Boaz get this new wife? And why is Boaz farming Elimelech's land? What's... And there would have been talk and there would have been scandal. There would have been disrepute brought to the name of Boaz and perhaps even rumors festering around the community. Well, it's because he married a Moabite. Who knows? Boaz doesn't do any of that. He doesn't do any of that. He took the extra steps of doing things in such a way that honored the laws and the traditions of his people. He gave the Redeemer ahead of him in line an opportunity to marry Ruth and to redeem Elimelech's land. He made his intentions crystal clear. And you could tell by the reaction of the community that they, they accepted what happened. The first Redeemer said no. Mr. So-and-so said no. And so... Boaz said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to marry Ruth. I'm going to redeem Elimelech's land, and I'm going to perpetuate the name of the dead. I'm going to raise up the house of Elimelech again. He made his intentions very clear, and the reaction by the community was celebration, right? It was, it was celebration. They said, uh, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. They just, they're excited. This is wonderful. So what do we learn by this? What do we learn by how Boaz does what he does? Well, here's, what, here's a takeaway, right? We show steadfast love to our community when we operate our lives within the laws and the customs of the land. When we operate our lives within the laws and the customs. There's something about if we are walking in the light, if we are operating according to the rules, 
And when the community says, we see what you're doing and it's, it's good, you know, it's good that you've, you've followed all the rules, it legitimizes whatever it is that you're trying to do. But on the other hand, it scandalizes when you don't, right? If you, if you circumvent, if you, if you manipulate, if you go around the laws and the customs, if we respect the laws and customs of our land, we are showing love to our neighbors. We're operating within the rules. I gave you a couple of passages of scripture to look at here. I'm not gonna look at them this morning for time, but these basically talk about the Christian's duty to submit to the governing authorities, right? So let's, 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 let's let this rubber hit the road, okay? Let's let this rubber hit the road. I always tell young people, and I'm gonna say it again today, uh, I'm just using this as an example. This is Scott's advice, okay, based on this text. I always tell young people, how do you know if you're marrying the right person? And uh, here's my advice. I, I, I can't cite scripture for this, but I think it's good advice. It's when your parents and your pastor agree. Not that I have control over your life, not that I wanna have control over your life, I'm simply saying that when, we, when you're looking for a biblical wife or a biblical or a godly wife or a godly husband, that when, you're, when you've introduced this man, this lady to your parents and they're excited and, and you start talking to your pastor about premarital counseling and your pastor's like, this is wonderful, this is great, yeah, let's do this. You know, you know. But how many people do you know that just say, well, mom's not happy, mom and dad aren't happy about this guy and I'm not even gonna introduce him to my pastor because wow, that's not gonna go well. So let's just run away and elope. You can do that. You can do that. That option is available to you. Here's, my, here's, my, here's what I've seen in my life just from experience guided by wisdom. Good luck. Good luck with your family relationships going forward. Good luck. I mean, it's, it's just gonna be harder, Right? Sometimes it's difficult to, to introduce that guy, that lady to your parents. Sometimes it's difficult to, to ask the tough questions. Do it. Do it ahead of time. Anyway, what else do we see in this passage? The next thing we see in this passage is loyalty failure. Look at verse six. Look at verse six, just one verse. The rede- then the redeemer, this is Mr. So-and-so, then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Now, or then he says, take my right of redemption for yourself or I cannot redeem it. I thought a long time and I studied a long time and what I'm about to tell you is kind of technical and I don't pretend to be an expert on all things Jewish, Old Testament Jewish. This is my best understanding of this passage, okay? I have a chart. Can we dim the lights? I know this, I'm calling an audible, but I, I try to put these in red and green so that you can see it. You can even shut them off. I mean, I don't care. Uh, is that a little bit better to see red and green? Okay, so, so let me explain what's going on here. Let me explain what's going on here. You have Elimelech's family. Elimelech, uh, this, assume that this is this, these figures here in the green are uh, Ruth and her husband, which we later see in the text is Ma- Malon. Okay, so they go to Moab, right? Or they get married in Moab and then Malon dies. So he's dead. Now, in Elimelech's family, there's not just people there, but there's land. That's what the little thing at the bottom with the sunrise is supposed to say. That's the land, right? And then there's Boaz's family. He's single, we think. And then he's got land of his own. So here's what's gonna happen. Ruth, the way this is gonna work is Ruth is going to marry Boaz but the first child, pay attention to the colors, the first child that they produce, first male child that they produce is going to be considered Malon's. He's gonna be in the clan of Elimelech. He's gonna further that name. And when that kid grows up, he's gonna take possession of Elimelech's family property. Now, all the other children that are produced in that marriage will be considered Boaz and Ruth's and they will continue on in their, in their um, property. They'll continue on in their family line. But put yourself in the position of Mr. So-and-so because there's some things that could go wrong with this system, right? Mr. So-and-so, they could only produce one child. Let's say that they get Mr. So-and-so or the Redeemer gets married to Ruth and they only produce one child. 
Well, then what happens to Boaz's family land when he dies? Well, presumably it would go to Elimelech's family unless somebody else would rise up and redeem it. You know, the next of kin of Boaz would rise up and produce a, a redeemer for Boaz. What I'm saying here is that this, this transaction that's taking place, this is not just, you can turn the lights back up, please, thank you. This, this transaction that's taking place is not just you get a wife and some land. There's some risks and rewards here. So let me go through those really quickly. There's the reward, the possible, so Mr. So-and-so could be thinking, oh, great, I'm gonna acquire more land. That's a reward. I'm gonna have to pay some money for it because it's being leased to somebody else, but I, can, I have right to go buy that property should I want to do that. Uh, so I'll get some land, at least until the child grows up. Well, he doesn't know about the, he only knows about the land at first, right? Well, then Boaz springs on him, well, you're gonna get a wife out of this deal. So one of the, one of the uh, rewards is, Ruth, you're going to get Ruth. That's a reward, right? Well, now let's look at the, so the rewards, the possible rewards are you're going to get land and you're going to get a wife. Now let's look at the risks. One of the risks is you're going to get a wife. That landed better in first service. I don't know. No, but he might, he might not be interested in, he, he maybe doesn't know Ruth. He's not interested in Ruth. Ruth and what's more is, She's a Moabite woman. And, you know, the Jews, I know it's the time of the judges. I don't, I, I don't know what the Jews were thinking about in that day about marrying a Moabite wife. So one of the risks, one of the possible risks is he's going to marry a Moabite wife. The other risk is the first, his first course of action with this new wife will be to raise up the first child for Malon. So the first child will not even be his, be Malon's. And then not only that, he's going to have to assume financial responsibility. This is a risk. He's going to have to assume financial responsibility for Naomi and for Ruth. He can't just take care of Ruth. He's got to take care of the mother-in-law as well. So he's taking on some financial obligation here. Uh, you know, in my life, I married Tracy 25 years ago, and I did not take responsibility for her mother because her mother's still married. They were still working at the time, whatever. There may, be a come a, there may come a time where we have to care for her, but right now, no. No, he immediately is not just getting a wife, he's getting a mother-in-law. That's, oh, that's a risk, right? There may be relational difficulty, who knows? There's also a risk because he needs to either pay for or wait till the year of Jubilee, if you want to read Leviticus 25, but he needs to somehow reacquire that land from whoever Elimelech rented it to or leased it to. He's going to have to pay some money to get that back. So that's a financial obligation. And then the last thing, the last risk that I could think of was that how Mr. So-and-so operates within these legal proceedings that are happening at the gate is going to tell people a lot about his reputation. So he, he, he can't just get the land and forget about the wife. He, he's going to have to take the whole kitten. He can't just take the land, the wife, and forget about the mother-in-law. He's either going to have to take the whole kitten caboodle or he's going to have to say no to the whole kitten caboodle. And he decides to say no. But you, I, went, I just wanted to show you how his inheritance may be at risk. If that guy marries Ruth and they only have one son, then it's going to affect his inheritance, his family line. Boaz does not do that. Boaz takes responsibility. So what do we see in this? What do we see in this loyalty failure? We see this. We can fail to show steadfast love sometimes because we calculate that the personal price is too high. The personal price is too high. I don't want to sacrifice for that person because it's going to put me out. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be, it's going to cost me money. It's going to, you know, whatever. And then I give you some passages of scripture that you can look at later. But Acts chapter five is Ananias and Sapphira. Remember that? They sold all their land. They, they were going to take the proceeds and give it all to the church, but they kept back a portion for themselves. Did not end well for Ananias and Sapphira. And then Luke 22 is, is how is this, the account of Judas betraying Jesus. Apparently he thought the, the price of following Jesus was too high. And so what did he do? He betrayed Jesus for money. Oftentimes, I mean, Jesus, 
Oftentimes in our culture today, following Jesus is made to look easy. It's made to look effortless. Just take Jesus and staple him onto your life and everything will be fine. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said that we are to take up our cross daily and follow him, right? There's going to be a cost. I would encourage you to consider that and to, to use what God has given you to risk what God has given you to do the right thing. Don't be like Mr. So-and-so. All right, the next thing that we see this in this text is loyalty to an individual. Look at verses 13 through 17. So here's what happened next. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and, went, and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And then the woman said to Naomi, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. She, uh, he shall answer, he, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. Wow. Has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. More on that in a moment. Boaz follows through. He doesn't just say he's gonna take care of Ruth and Naomi. He does it. He doesn't say he's gonna marry Ruth. He marries her and they have a son. And that son is given as the redeemer to raise up the house of Elimelech. Ruth is cared for. Naomi is cared for. The land is preserved for Elimelech's, Elimelech's heritage. And the son is produced to carry on the family's name in Israel. And this came at a cost to Boaz. But Boaz seemed to be driven by not, what it, not a calculation of what this is going to do to him personally. He seemed to be more driven by love, love of God, love of Ruth, and love of his community. So what does this teach us? It teaches us this. We can often show love Steadfast love to others through self-sacrifice and follow-through. We can often show steadfast love to others through self-sacrifice and follow-through. And again, I've given you several passages of Scripture to contemplate. I'll mention a couple of them, but uh, Ecclesiastes, which we just studied not too long ago, chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, talks about risking, risking to do right. Go ahead and take, you know, the Bible says, go ahead and take risks. You know, take good, solid risks, right? Um, sometimes it doesn't make any sense to help somebody out because you might put your own personal life or, or fortunes in jeopardy. But again, Proverbs 3, 5 says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. There's times when we know the right thing to do, but we know it's gonna cost us dearly. That was true for Boaz, and he did it. But the ultimate example is found in Philippians 2, right? This is a very familiar passage of Scripture, but it talks about Christ and how he was the ultimate sacrifice maker. Let each of you not look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, this is what my mind does when I read that. He had it made in the shade in the third grade. He had it all. There was nothing that he wanted. He was in the form of God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus did not go into Jerusalem and suffer the ridicule and the persecution of the mob and then waltz out. Jesus didn't allow himself to be tried and be put on that cross only to have angels come down and descend and to undo his hands and unspike his feet and to rescue him from that cross. Jesus went all the way. And he was obedient to the point of death 
even death on a cross. Folks, he paid the price that it took to redeem you and I from our sin. He didn't have to do it. He did it willingly. It came at great cost. Boaz understood a concept that you and I would do well to learn today. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Think of the way that Boaz did business. Think about the way Boaz operated his life. He did it according to God's righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Boaz also understood something and I, listen, I don't know the chronology of this. I don't know which was written first. I don't know, I don't know if, if the book of Ruth came first or the Proverbs came first. But Boaz apparently understood because he had, he had kept an eye on Ruth. He had seen her operating out in the field and he knew that she was a woman of noble character. And I don't know that if Boaz didn't understand the following principle, Proverbs 31.10, an excellent wife, who can find she is far more precious than jewels. Maybe he knew that. And maybe no cost was too big for him to acquire her as a wife. Skip down to Proverbs 31, 23. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. It boggles my imagination. Did, who wrote first? Did did, did somebody read the book of Ruth and say, you know, I'm going to write about that in proverbial form. I'm going to put it down in Proverbs 31, 10 to the end. Or did, was Proverbs there first? And I don't know, but man, those two things kind of go together, don't they? The whole story of Ruth and Boaz in Proverbs 31. Boaz was loyal. He spotted the character that Ruth displayed and he was loyal. He wanted that in his life. He redeemed it. And then finally, God's loyalty to humanity. I'm gonna make an admission to you now. I've been trying to keep this from you. For those of you that don't know, maybe you don't know God's word all that well, I've been, I've been kind of saving this for the, the big climax of the, of the study. But God, this, this story of Ruth, this story of just like three people from a certain tribe, well, four people, sorry, Ruth and or Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons, these four people from a certain tribe and there's a famine in the land and they go to a different land, land that they're not supposed to be going to and everything bad happens there and then they come back and it looks bad, but then something wonderful happens. This whole mundane story, just like, why is this in the Bible? What is this doing here? Why would God take the time to deposit in his word, Ruth chapter one, two, three, and four? Here's one reason. God's loyalty to humanity. Let's read the rest of the rest of the book, 18 to 22. These are the generations of Perez. This is uh, telling you there's a genealogy coming. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab, Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Wait just a cotton picking minute. Are you telling me, are you telling me that these people, Boaz, who married a Moabite woman, that Boaz is in the line of David? I'm not even telling you that. It's way better than that. Take, take your Bibles and turn to, I'm gonna fast forward because I messed this up. Matthew chapter one. Take your Bibles and fast forward to Matthew chapter one because in Matthew chapter one, there's a much more exhaustive genealogy. This just gets better. This mundane story about four Bethlehemites and their travels and travails, their trials and travails, their tragic, the tragic death and then the restoration by this guy, Mo, Boaz. Look at how this thing ends. Pick it up in, in Matthew 1, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah. Are you bored yet? And his brothers. This is the part where your eyes, you know, when you're reading the Bible on your own, your eyes kind of glaze over and you just go, okay, I'm gonna skip to the end. Don't do it in this one, man. Don't do it. 
Judah, father, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. That's a whole scandal in Genesis chapter, what, 37, 38? Hezron, uh, Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadab. Okay, well, now we're getting where Ruth was, right? Abinadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. By Rahab, the prostitute who who entertained the spies that went into Jericho. Yes, that Rahab, that Rahab is in this genealogy somewhere before Boaz was ever born. Rahab was either his mother or his grandmother or his, some, you know, sometimes they skip generations in these genealogies, but Rahab is in the line of Boaz, right? Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of King David the king. And just out of curiosity, brothers and sisters in Christ, whose genealogy are we looking at here? Jesus Christ. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This family line is going to end with the Savior of the world. And the people that God used to be in the line of the savior of the world who are are people who demonstrated loyalty like Boaz and like Ruth. Even though she was a Moabite and even though Boaz was the descendant of a prostitute. This is a really great chapter. Ruth chapter four is a great chapter for, to talk about racism. Is God concerned with, the, with where, somewhat country they're from? You know, or is he, is he more concerned about the content of their... Yes, Ruth and Boaz produce a child who will later become the father of David, who will later become the father of... Well, he'll become in the line of Christ. Why is this important? Let me back up. Let me back up. God displayed his steadfast love to all people by following through on his promise. What was his promise? His promise was found in Genesis chapter three. And I'll I'll wait a minute before I go to the next slide. But in Genesis chapter three, yes, the third chapter of the Bible, after God had created everything and it was all very good in Genesis one and two, and then man plunged into sin because of his disobedience to to God's one command, In Genesis chapter three, God pronounces a curse on the serpent and this is what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Meaning there's going to come out of the seed of human woman, out of of this, out of the womb of a woman, there's going to come a one who is going to arise and he is going to smash the serpent, Satan. He's gonna defeat sin and death once and for all. That person was Jesus Christ and the people that God used to perpetuate the line was a a man named Boaz who displayed simple loyalty and fidelity to his God and to his people and a Boabite who committed herself to Naomi saying, your God will be my God. If that doesn't tell you something about what God esteems, (laughs) I don't know what does. Your family name, your genealogy, none of that stuff matters. God values loyalty, steadfast love. So, What's the big answer to the question? Let's, what's the answer to the big question? It says, we, the question was, how can we tell when loyalty is genuine? We can tell loyalty is genuine when it translates into meaningful and sacrificial action towards another. Meaningful and sacrificial action towards another. Now, here's some application. Let's think about this for a minute. Dedicate yourself to the Lord and his mission. There are many Christian churches and many Christian denominations out there that would perpetuate or the perpetuate the lie that uh, all you need to do is take Christ and kind of staple him to your life. You know, do whatever you want throughout the week, but come to church on Sunday and claim the name of Christ and everything will be fine. That is not 
what we're doing here. God has given us a very clear mission on this earth, and that is to love him with everything that we've got, love others as ourselves, and make disciples, make followers of Jesus Christ. And the, the bad news is, the, the, the true news is, we are not loyal to God. But the good news is, is that he is loyal to us. He has redeemed us through Jesus Christ. He has taken away our sin for those that have trusted in him. But each and every day, we get up and we make choices about what we're going to do today, what we're not going to do today. And I want to encourage you to dedicate your life to the Lord and his mission. Do things God's way. Secondly, I want to encourage you to, that within the mission, commit yourself to an individual. There's a famous pastor, I can't think of who it is right now, I'm sure Bart will remind me later, but uh, he says, do for one what you hoped or wished you could do for all. In other words, I think I, we get, I know I do, I kind of get wrapped around the axle sometimes about, oh, I can't help everybody out. I, I only have so many hours in a day. And, and in that day, I want to spend some time with the Lord. I want to spend some time with my wife and kids. And, and I, and I got to eat at some point. So, but, but maybe I could help someone. Do find someone that's in your sphere of influence who needs you. Maybe they need the word of God ministered to them. Perhaps it's a brother or sister in need. Commit yourself loyally and faithfully to that individual and then rely on God to do his part. Let God do his work. If you don't learn anything from this text or for that matter, the life of Christ, learn this. God can do extraordinary things with ordinary people who are committed to him. He can do through you. In this room, you think, oh, I live in Delaware, Ohio. It's a minuscule town in the middle of nowhere, whatever. God can do through you extraordinary things if you are committed to him. Now, I know you think you're done because the clock is almost to noon, but I, I wanna do a quick series wrap up here because I think there's quickly a few things that we can take away from the book of Ruth in general from the book of Ruth in general. And here they are. Number one, Boaz is a picture of Jesus Christ, right? Boaz is practicing loyal and sacrificial love. Now, Boaz is not Jesus Christ, but he's a, he points forward to what Jesus will do. He will come, he will at great cost to himself lay down his life to redeem our broken lives and to restore our busted up names in the congregation of God's people, Amen. You have a name, you have value to God and God wants to restore you. He wants to redeem you. He wants to save you from your sins and he wants to have you to help you to have a, a meaning-filled life, right? Living according to his word. Will you live loyally to him? It's a picture of Jesus Christ. Secondly, what we see in this text is Naomi. Naomi gives me great hope, right? Naomi is that woman who went into a land that she probably wasn't supposed to go into. She came back and said, God's hand is against me. Her, my husband is dead. My sons are dead. All I've got is this cotton-picking daughter-in-law who's a Moabitess. And God's hand is against me. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. She had that attitude. But Naomi is evidence that even when people make sinful choices, God is still working to bring redemption. You may think, you may sit in your chair this morning and reason, I've done too many things that are evil. I've done too many things that are wicked. God can't possibly do anything with my life. His hand is against me. Look at all the trials that I'm going through. Look at all the sins that I'm struggling with. God's hand is against me. But this story, Ruth illustrates that God's grace extends to you too. God is always, he has stated in his word, his purpose. He desires that all men are saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. All people are saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That is his stated purpose. The question on the table is, will you, you live in that? Will you exist in that? Will you believe that? And then finally, this story contained in the book of Ruth illustrates how God can use the loyalty of ordinary people who are experiencing strange and difficult circumstances for extraordinary purposes in his overall plan of redemption. I have, there's no way that Boaz could have ever known that 
when he did the math in his head of like what he was going to do here, that he was going to marry this Ruth and that he was going to be what grandfather, great grandfather to David, the king of Israel, and that someday that line would end in the one, the the Messiah, the anointed one who would come and finally put down, strike the head, smash the head of sin and death forever. You might have a view of the trials that are in your life. You might view them as a bad situation. You might conclude that the things that you've done have crossed too many lines, that turning to God and living a life loyal to him and by extension to put others uh, ahead of yourself, that, that you might think that that's, it's not even worth it at this point. You're wrong. This proves it. Turn to God today. You have a name. God does not want that name to be blotted out, but to redeem it forever. So consider your life. Are you living a life of loyalty to God? Are you living a life of loyalty to others? If not, today is the day to turn around. And if you haven't yet trusted Jesus Christ as your savior from sin, that door of salvation, I don't know how long it's gonna be open. It could close today. I don't know when Jesus is coming. I don't know. But I do know this. Right now, at noon, on May 16th, right? 2021, the door of salvation is wide open. Will you walk through it? If so, come see me. I'd love to guide you. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the book of Ruth. It's amazing. It's incredible. We have not yet plumbed the depths that exist in this tiny little four-chapter book. And yet it's a tremendous gift for us. It gives us so much hope and it points forward to the one reality that we bank our lives on, and that is that we have been redeemed. Those that have trusted your son, Jesus Christ, have been redeemed. Our lives have been taken out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. So thankful for that, Father. Now help us be Boaz-like. Help us to be Ruth-like to live, to commit ourselves, but not just in words, but also in action, in attitude, to your mission, to your word as it's laid out before us and to your plan for our lives. Trusting that, Father, because of the work, the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ, our lives will be redeemed. We will be with you for eternity someday. And oh, what a day that will be. In Jesus' name, amen.